Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio, Colossians 2, 1 through 15. I found it a little bit difficult to give it a title, but I'm going to call it The Christian is Filled with the Fullness of Christ. So we'll talk about basically a lot of stuff about who the Christ, who Christians are, what their identity is in Christ. Our context is this. In chapter 1, we talked about the preeminence of Christ, who Christ was. Now in chapter 2, we're going to talk about who Christians are in Christ. So we start with Colossians 2.1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, Paul writes, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. Now, Paul talks about a struggle, that means working, that means striving, and of course, reformed people love to say, in order to get sanctified, you need to work, you need to strive, you need to labor, you need to struggle. Well, that's fine, I agree with that. But we got to remember, accompanied with that struggle, it's not really you that's doing it, it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, doing it in you, because as Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, that's zero Let's look at Colossians 1.29 at the end of the last chapter. Paul says this, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. There he is. He's working. He's striving. But what does he strive with? His strength, Jesus' strength. Where does that strength work? It works powerfully in union with me. In me, it means in union with. Struggling without his strength is a complete waste of time and energy. So we have to remember that when we read this stuff about working and striving. What was Paul struggling for? Well, the maturity of the Christians in the area, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Colossians 1.28 says this, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Remember, Paul is dealing with Jewish Gnostic heretical teachings, and so he's warning against that. He's teaching everyone the truth about all that with the purpose that he may present everyone mature in Christ complete in Christ without being screwed up by these heretics. Now we need to remember that this is an important task for all Christians is to bring everybody else up into maturity. Older Christians should bring younger Christians up to maturity. You should make it your highest priority. Once a Christian gets mature, they're not going to get eaten by wolves. What was the nature of Paul's struggles for those in Colossae and the surrounding area? Well, he endured many conflicts, strife, agony, wrestling with God in fervent prayer, combats with false apostles. Now, of course, the combats with false apostles were not face-to-face because Paul's in prison. However, he's, his, his disciples, like Epaphras, is out there fighting with false teachers. And Paul's teaching. When he teaches people and they go out and teach to the area, they're going to be dealing with false teachers. He was defending truth. He was refuting error. He was wrestling with principalities and powers. All this stuff is listed by John Gillis, what Paul was doing when he was struggling. He was struggling mightily. Now, he says he struggles for you, the Colossians, and also for those in Laodicea. Laodicea is about 11 miles from Colossae. If you look at the map, if you look at Miletus on the coast south of Ephesus, on the coast of Western Asia Minor, and you go up the valley of the Meander River. You pass through Magnesia, a well-known town. Then you go up the valley, and you go 100 miles or so, and you get to the branch where the Lycus River branches off to the southeast. The Meander River runs due west to east, and then to the southeast runs the Lycus River. The Lycus River splits Laodicea, 
which is on the west side of the Lycus River, and Hierapolis, which is on the east side of the Lycus River. The Lycus River splits those two cities, and then in another, how many miles is that? That's about, I don't know, it looks like about five miles, 11 miles, 11 miles further you get to Colossae from Laodicea. So you see that the letter was going to circulate with these churches there in, the, in that area. Now, let, let me give you some information about Laodicea. This is kind of interesting. It's from BibleAtlas.org. It's a city of Asia Minor situated in the Lycus Valley in the province of Phrygia and the home of one of the seven churches of Revelation. It's distinguished from several other cities of that name by the appellation Ad Lycum. I guess that means it near the Lycus River. It was it was founded by Antiochus II, one of the Seleucid successors of Alexander the Great. It was founded by him, Antiochus II, who lived from 261 to 246 B.C., who named it for his wife Laodice. Now, there's lots of Laodices in Syrian history, in uh, the history of the successors. Lots of them. But one of them, this one, had a city named after her. And the... The Seleucid Empire populated the city with Syrians and with, and with Jews who were transplanted from Babylonia to the cities of Phrygia and Lydia. Lydia is another province in Asia Minor. Phrygia is the province where Laodicea is. Though Laodicea stood on the great highway at the junction of several important routes, it was a place of little consequence until the Roman province of Asia was formed in 190 B.C. It then suddenly became a great and wealthy center of industry, famous especially for the fine black wool of its sheep and for the Phrygian powder for the eyes, which was manufactured there. Now, if you read in Revelation 3.18, we read this. John says, I advise, this is Jesus talking. Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. Laodicea was a big banking area at the time, so... There's a reference to gold and riches. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. Now that was probably referring to the black sheep wool, very fine sheep's wool that was sold there in Laodicea. And Jesus probably said, okay, we're going to take the opposite of that. You're, you, you fancy yourself well dressed with this black wool. Well, maybe you ought to put on some white robes of righteousness. And then... Jesus goes on to say in Revelation 3.18, buy from Jesus some ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. And that refers to the famous eye ointment industry there in Laodicea. Revelation 3.17, the previous verse says, because you say, I'm rich. I become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't know that you're a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So there, Jesus uses another opposite reference. You're rich, but you need to be poor in material goods. Well, actually, you're rich in material goods, but you need to be rich in spiritual goods. There's your contrast. And you, you're you happy with black wool. You need to be happy with robes of white linen righteousness. And you need to anoint your eyes with spiritual salve so that you can see and forget about this fancy eye makeup that you make there in Laodicea. Laodicea, remember, became lukewarm, the lukewarm church. And isn't that not surprising? Because rich People tend to get lukewarm. Going on with BibleAtlas.org, describing Laodicea, in the vicinity was the Temple of Menkaru and a renowned school of medicine. In the year 60 AD, which is just about the time Paul was writing this letter to the Colossians, the city was almost entirely destroyed by an earthquake. I assumed it. Well, I assume Paul wrote the letter after the, after the destruction by the earthquake. 
But so wealthy were its citizens that they rejected the proffered aid of Rome and quickly rebuilt it at their own expense. It was a city of great wealth with extensive banking operations. That's why Jesus says, buy from me some gold. Buy me gold refined in the fire. He's referring to all the gold they had there. Little is known of the early Christian of Christianity there. Timothy, Mark, and Epaphras seem to have been the first to introduce it. Well, Paul's mentioned Timothy and Epaphras in Colossians chapter 1. I don't know how Mark is involved with Colossians. That's a speculation. I don't know where it came from, but at any rate, we'll take it as an interesting speculation. However, Laodicea was early the chief bishopric of Phrygia. Phrygia, by the way, is the the Roman province that as you go, as you approach the western coast of Anatolia and you go inland a little bit, that's Phrygia. Laodicea was on the eastern end of Phrygia. In about 166 A.D., Sagaris, its bishop, was martyred. In 1071, the city was taken by the Seljuks. In 1119, it was recovered to the Christians by John Comnenus. And in the 13th century, it finally fell in the hands of the Turks, where it is today. It's a Turkish city now, Laodicea. It's under the Muslims. It went from being lukewarm to Muslim, I guess. At any rate, Paul went for that letter to be read at Laodicea as well as at Colossae. And Paul says also... I have been struggling not only for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, but also for all of those who have not seen me in person. And in the verse 1, he says that. Well, some say this proves that Paul had never been to Laodicea, as he had never been to Colossae. But other people say, nah, he probably was at Laodicea. He could have passed through that more than once through the country, evangelizing and strengthening the churches as he branched out from his base at Ephesus on the third journey where he stayed there for three years. And in fact, some people say it's very improbable that Paul never visited the churches there. So what does he mean by those who have not seen you in person? Well, Paul, it is the people who say this, that Paul was actually had been to Laodicea. These people say when Paul says, I'm struggling for those of you who haven't seen me, he's speaking of individual Christians there who hadn't met him yet, which is, of course, possible. You can't meet everybody when you go visit a place. So it's up in the air whether Paul ever went to Laodicea. Paul says in verse 5, I'm with you in spirit, which doesn't sound like Paul is writing to perfect strangers. We'll leave that one up in there. We go to Colossians 2, 2. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. I want their hearts whose hearts. Paul's referring to those who had not seen Paul personally, as I just mentioned in the verse 1, because... He said he called the people at Colossae and Laodicea you, which is second person. Then he re, then he goes to the third person there. So he's talking about people who hadn't personally seen him yet. He wants them to be encouraged, joined together in love, so that they may have all the riches of a true understanding, have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Knowledge. The Greek there implies, quote, full and accurate knowledge, as James of Fawcett and Brown says. Now, when Paul starts talking about knowledge and wisdom, he's probably refuting a Gnostic-type heresy. He always talks about knowledge. And, of course, he's talking about esoteric knowledge, secret passwords, secret spiritual gobbledygook that will get you closer to the demiurge and all that kind of nonsense. Sometimes he talks about knowledge in the sense of Greek philosophical knowledge, but here he's talking about Gnostic knowledge, I'm sure. He's, he's in, in referring to that, but, of course, what he's directly referring to, he wants the these Christians who haven't met him yet, to have true knowledge, the knowledge of God's mystery. Now there, that's academic, I shouldn't say academic knowledge, it's objective knowledge, it's not knowledge like you know a person, this is you know the teaching or the doctrine about God, about God's mystery, Christ. 
Notice that the average lowly Christian could have access to this knowledge. It was not secret esoteric knowledge. You didn't have to be a Gnostic guru to attain to that knowledge. All of these Christians can have this knowledge of God's mystery. Now, mystery is used over and over again in Ephesians and Colossians. Paul is referring to mystery religions, many of whom I'm sure were steeped in Gnosticism. The mystery religions operated this way. There's a secret gnosis knowledge. That's where we get the term Gnostic from. Secret gnosis that's known by gurus, Gnostic gurus, spiritual medicine men, and they would reveal to you spiritual passwords. And there was some kind of angelic hierarchy stretched out through the spiritual world, and you could work your way up the hierarchy from level one to level two, like you're in some kind of a cosmic video game. And these angels would give you that esoteric knowledge, the passwords to get from one level to the next. It does sound like a video game. Well, Paul is referring to that, and he's saying, no, that's not the kind of knowledge we want. We have the knowledge of God's mystery. That's not the kind of mystery we're talking about. The mystery that the Gnostics talked about was secret knowledge that was never revealed to anybody unless you sucked up to the gurus long enough. But Paul is talking about things hidden before in God's eternal plan, but which are freely revealed to everybody now. So Paul steals the pagans, steals their word mystery and distinguishes it by adding words of revelation. Now let me, I have got here 16 mentions of mystery by Paul. So he used the word all the time. All but five of them have revelation of some sort connected with the mystery, which proves my point that Paul wanted this mystery to be known. Five of them do not. I'm not going to read the five that don't have revelation mixed with them, but I'll read the other 11. First one, Colossians 1, 26 and 27, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known about the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. God wanted to make known, which means to reveal the glorious wealth of that mystery. Second instance, Colossians 4, 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the message to speak the mystery of the Messiah. The mystery is spoken of. It's revealed. Third instance, Ephesians 1, 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Made known that mystery. It's revealed. Fourth instance, Ephesians 3, 3 through verse 4 and verse 6. Verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So the mystery was not hidden by God, but it was revealed to Paul. It was made known by revelation. Verse 4, by reading this, you're able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. In verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body. All right, that's what the mystery was. It was made known to Paul by revelation in verse 3. Fifth instance, Ephesians 3, 9, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery. Shed light, that means to let everybody know about it. About what? The mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Sixth instance, Romans 16:25. Now to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages. So there's clear connection of mystery and revelation. Seventh instance, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. We speak about it. We're telling you about it. We're not hiding it like these Gnostic gurus are doing. Eighth instance, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, listen, I am telling you a mystery. Paul's telling them the mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. That's the resurrection of the glorified body. 
Paul is telling them about it. It's not, he's not keeping it hidden. Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It's the relationship of Jesus and the church is a profound mystery, but it's not a secret mystery because now Paul is talking about it. Tenth instance, Ephesians 6.19. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So the gospel was a mystery, secret knowledge about salvation. Paul says, I want to open my mouth and make that known. It's not going to be hidden anymore. Eleventh instance, 1 Timothy 3.16. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh. Manifested means made known, openly shown, that mystery of godliness. He was seen by angels where everybody could see it. The angels knew. He was preached among the nations. The mystery of the godliness, which is basically Jesus, was preached among the nations. It was not kept secret. So, Paul wants these people who haven't met him to have knowledge of that mystery. And he sums the mystery up in one word, Christ. That which was hidden before the New Testament era was revealed now. It's not a mystery anymore. We're going to speak about it. It's revealed. Now, I went through all these passages on mystery. I didn't really talk about the content of the mystery. I'm going to give you some examples of what Paul used the word mystery to refer to. The incarnation in 1 Timothy 3.16. The resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.1. That Gentiles and Jews are one man and one body of Christ, Ephesians 3.6. The relationship of Christ and the church, Ephesians 5.32. The good news of the gospel, Ephesians 6.19. In other words, everything about the gospel is called a mystery at one point or another. And right here in verse 2, Paul sums it all up. God's mystery, Christ. One word, Christ. That's the mystery that's now been revealed. That's all you need is Christ. Not all this stupid Gnostic knowledge or Jewish legalistic knowledge. We go now to verse 3, Colossians 2. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Now, of course, Paul is once again emphasizing knowledge because the Gnostics were emphasizing knowledge of the wrong kind. And Paul is saying, no, the knowledge that you want is the kind that's hidden in Christ. Now, remember, hidden, but it's also revealed as I finish pointing out. That verse I just read, verse 2 Paul said he wanted everybody that didn't know him to have an assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. He wanted it to be known. So when he says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, he means hidden temporarily because he eventually wants to make it known. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, previous chapter. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul wants them to know God's will. Verse 10, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. So you see, Paul is not trying to say that this hidden knowledge about Christ should remain hidden. He wants everybody to know about it, to hear about it, and to grow in the knowledge of it. Treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A treasury is a mine of inexhaustible wealth. All you want there. Is there a distinction between wisdom and knowledge? Knowledge is factual knowledge about something. It could be doctrinal truth, just factual knowledge in general. And wisdom is how you use it, how you apply it. As Jameson Fawcett Brown says, knowledge is special truth or intellectual and doctrinal truth. It's kind of more like an, an uh, intellectual knowledge. But then wisdom is experimental and practical truth, general truth, how you apply it. Kind of like the book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. But they're both, of course, closely related. Notice that Paul in verse 3 says that the treasuries, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden where? In him. Now, every time you see in, you can say in union with. 
All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in union with him, in union with Jesus. So you want to know something? You want to know Jesus? You want to know about Jesus? And you want to know Jesus personally? Relish in the fact that you are in union with him. There's nothing separating you between. There's no space. There's no gap between you and Jesus because you're in union with him. And he's going to tell you everything you need to know abundantly because it's a treasure. Now that in him is translated by some people in which referring to the gospel. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in the gospel. Well, let's just stick with in him. I think that's, that's what most of the translations say and, it, and it's, it's just better. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. We now go to verse 4. I am saying this, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. In other words, don't go listen to these stupid, idiotic, Jewish-slash-Gnostic arguments because all the treasures that you need, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you need are hidden in him, and you're in union with him. So what do you need all these other stupid arguments for? Persuasive arguments. Here's how Gill describes those persuasive arguments. Mere words, great swelling words of vanity, which like bubbles look big and make a great noise, but contain nothing but wind and emptiness. Fair speeches, specious pretenses, false colorings, fallacious reasonings, a show of probability and appearance of science, falsely so-called. So, Jameson Fawcett defines these persuasive arguments as the blending of Judaism, Christianity, and Oriental philosophy. Remember, it was a Jewish Gnostic-type heresy that Paul's dealing with, so there's your Judaism, and Gnostic is Oriental. That's the Eastern philosophy that emphasizes that kind of stuff came from the ancient Near East. And then, of course, they throw some Christian stuff in there, too, and you got a mess of heretical pottage. Paul describes these persuasive arguments in Colossians 2.18, later on in the chapter, he says this, Let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. Worship of angels. That was another problem these Gnostic people had. Asceticism. You can't sleep, eat, or have sex with your wife. Colossians 2.5. Oh, you got to wear a hair shirt. Well, same thing as not sleeping, I guess. Colossians 2.5, For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. Now, I'm not sure that that shows that he knew them real well. He can say, I'm with you in spirit, even though he doesn't know them well, because they're his Christian brothers and sisters. So, I'm not sure what that proves by him saying, I'm with you in spirit, except that he, he's got the same goals that they do and the same attitude they have. He's absent in body and present in spirit. He told the same thing to the Corinthians when he was urging the Corinthians to discipline the brother who was sleeping with his stepmother. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 3, Though I am absent in body but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. So Paul sort of, he doesn't astrally project himself to these churches he's talking to, but he, he's saying, I'm with you there. My attitude is I, I am with you so much that it's almost like I'm there in person. Rejoicing to see how well ordered you are in the strength of your faith in Christ. Now notice Paul is commending the Colossians here. He's saying their faith is strong, the strength of your faith in Christ. But he's still warning them, teaching and warning them about the heresies of these Jewish Gnostics. Which just goes to show it doesn't matter how strong you are. It never hurts to receive admonition about something that you're strong in. Because you could get weak in it later. Notice how Paul uses positive encouragement. He's rejoicing. Things are going well. You know, you should, you know, when you're warning somebody, you should always put in some good stuff. 
to encourage them for the good things that they're doing. We go to Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. You receive Jesus Christ, and a lot of times we say, have you received Christ? And we just say that as evangelical tradition kind of, but you know, Paul actually uses the phrase here, verse 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So we can we use the term born again, because that's in the Bible also. Have you received Christ? Is your Savior yet? Paul states it that way when he talks to the Colossians. As you've received, walk in him. Now, walk in him means live in him. In fact, the NIV, I think, translates that as walk in him. So what's the similarity here? You received Jesus in faith, so now walk in faith or live in faith. You received him in humility, so walk in humility. could be something like that. Or it could be, You receive Jesus as a result of sound teaching, so continue to walk in sound teaching. Don't be turned aside by legalists or Gnostics. Well, or it could be all three of those things. And how are we to walk in him? Verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Now there Paul mixes his metaphors here. He's got a double metaphor, really rooted. That means you're like a tree. Your roots go down deep into the soil, drawing moisture and nutrients from the soil and also giving you protection from the winds that blow and want to blow your tree over. The roots hold you firm. It's a great metaphor. We are supposed to be rooted in Christ with our roots deep in him, taking moisture and nourishment from Christ so that nothing can blow us over. So it's a great metaphor. He also says built up in him. Built up in him is like, that. it refers to the fact that we are like a temple for God's habitation. Adam Clark says it's not usual for Paul to employ a double metaphor like this, rooted and grounded. But the built up, as we're being built up in a temple, emphasizes our solidity, our firmness. When the wind blows and the waters rise, we're not blown away, we're not washed away, but we are like a house built on a rock. We stand. We're a temple. So we're a tree rooted by rivers of righteousness, and we're built up like a temple in Christ. Now, Paul says in verse 6, you should walk in him, in Christ. There's that in again. In him means in union with him. NIV Study Bible puts it this way, quote, The believer's intimate, spiritual, living union with Christ is mentioned repeatedly in this letter. I've got that quote. I've got another quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, and also I have done uh, looked up the word in in the lexicons, and it's you can easily say translated in union with every time you see it. It means a lot more in. It's just a preposition. We don't pay any attention to it. But in union with, that sounds like an intimate, spiritual, living union with Christ, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. So here's some scriptures in Colossians to show how this union with Christ is constantly mentioned in this letter. That's one great theme of the book of Colossians, is union with Christ. I I talked about how chapter 1 talked about the preeminence of Christ. He's head of all creation, the church. And chapter number 2 talks about who we are in Christ, in union with him. So in union with him is a big theme in Colossians. Let's look at verse 7, Colossians 2. Rooted and built up in him. I just read that. That's the verse we're on. Colossians 2, 10 through 13. And you have been filled by him. We're going to get to that verse in a minute. I'm going to expound on it in just a little bit. In fact, well, let me go ahead and mention it right here since we're talking about being in him. You've been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him. I'm going to read it as in union with him, even though it's not in the translation. You are also circumcised in union with him. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him. 
And when you were dead in trespasses and in, the, in, in, and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. Now, with him is not quite the same thing as in, as in union as in him. With is you kind of look at you and Jesus side by side accompanying each other. In union with, you're in a lock with each other, arm in arm, kind of like that. Colossians 2.20, if you died with the Messiah. Colossians 1.2, to the saints in union with Christ at Colossae. Colossians 1.27.28. Christ in union with you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in union with Christ. Colossians 3.1, so if you have been raised with the Messiah, seek what is above, raised with the Messiah. Colossians 3.3, if you have died and your life is hidden with the Messiah, in union with God. When you put it all together like that, that means something. It's something that most Western Christians hardly ever talk about, in union with Christ especially of those of the Reformed tradition. I'm going to a church that is heavily influenced by Reformed Christianity. And I talked uh, Sunday, I did a 20-minute teaching on are you a sinner or you're a saint. And Reformed people love to talk about sin and we're sinners and we're worms and we're sinners, but can you actually get them to say that they're saints, that they're in union with Christ, that they partake of the nature of Christ? You had to be an Eastern Orthodox to do that. There's lots of stuff in there that talks about us in union with Christ and partake and being filled. We're going to get to these verses in a minute. Being filled up with the fullness of Christ. That's not talking about you as a sinner. That's talking about you as somebody who has the very nature of Jesus Christ, who shares the nature of Jesus Christ. And Christ ain't no sinner. But at any rate, Paul says for the Colossians to walk in union with Christ, rooted and built up in union with Christ and established in the faith, just as you were taught who taught them. Well, that would probably be Epaphras, was the guy who started the church, maybe. Other teachers might have come out from Ephesus that Paul had sent out. Paul himself might have come out from Ephesus. But at any rate, you were taught the good stuff, Paul's saying, so don't listen to that false teaching that you're hearing from the Gnostics. Now, all these verses I read about dying with the Messiah, raised, being raised with the Messiah, that uses the Greek synonym suin, with, and then all the verses about Christ in you, in union with you, the hope of glory. Those verses use the Greek preposition "n" soon for with and and for in. Well, soon means with, and that's that shows comrade, camaraderie, comradeship, if you will. We're working together with. That's nice. But the "n" in union with is a little bit stronger. Now, in the South, we have what we call sweet tea, and I always thought sweet tea was you put sugar in it, and you mixed it in, and sugar is, is not a, it doesn't change the chemical composition of the tea, it just mixes, it just floats around in solution, from my little bit of knowledge of high school chemistry. But I read later that sweet tea, down here, well, anywhere, sweet tea, when you put sugar in hot tea, and you mix it in, a completely new substance is formed, that that sugar actually chemically reacts with that tea, and it will not separate itself back out as you let it settle it's gone it you have you went from tea to sweet tea you are in a different completely different substance now when you're drinking that sweet tea the tea and the sugar cannot be separated well that's what happens when you're in christ you are a completely different substance you are a new man in christ which is a completely different substance from that old man in christ and you cannot be separated from the Holy Spirit who made you into that new substance, who mixed himself with your spirit and made you something completely new. We go now to Colossians 2.8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of the world and not based on Christ. 
Now, the Greek here for philosophy is the philosophy, is Jameson Fawcett Brown, and what he's saying is he's not trying to condemn all philosophy. He's trying to condemn the philosophy which is based on human tradition, the philosophy which is based on elemental forces of the world, in other words, on the legalistic Judaizing Gnostics who use elemental forces of the world as legalism. So he's saying don't listen to philosophy based on legalism. So don't listen to philosophy based on human tradition, whether it's Gentile or Jews, Jewish, or on legalism, elemental forces of the world. Any philosophy that's not based on Christ, which leaves open the possibility that some philosophy is okay. And that is, and I think that's absolutely true. However, I think it's good to point out that philosophy can only get one so far, even good philosophy, and you can't get very far with it. I know I've read lots of philosophy, a lot more than the average listener would read it or the average Christian that I know has read nearly as much philosophy I have and I've decided that most of it's an absolute pile of BS, bologna sausage it's just it's a waste of time not all of it but a lot of it here's what John Gill says about it philosophy is not to be mixed with the pure gospel of Christ it has always been fatal to it witness the school of Pantaneus and Alexandria in the early times of Christianity by which the simplicity of the gospel was greatly corrupted and the race of schoolmen a few centuries ago, that's Thomas Aquinas' people in the Catholic Church, and the race of schoolmen a few centuries ago who introduced the philosophy of Aristotle, Averroes, and others into all the subjects of divinity. Well, Gill is jumping on. He's a Calvinist, and Calvinists don't like Thomas. But I, I, I like Thomas Aquinas. He said some good stuff. Now, the Catholic stuff he said was not good, but is when it comes to straight philosophy and religion, he had some good stuff. And Gill says, talks about the schoolman introducing Averroes, 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 I can't, I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, Averroes. Well, Aquinas was very clear to distinguish himself from Averroes because Averroes believed in the eternity of the world. And Thomas Aquinas says, no, the Bible says that's not so. So Aquinas was very careful to put the Bible above philosophy. He just tried to fill in some cracks that the Revelation didn't tell us about. But he is sort of unusual because most people once they start messing with christianity and philosophy it turns into an absolute mess and i'm including modern philosophers too some of these people in the 1800s that talked about ideal idealism the hegel type people a lot of them would actually try to smuggle christianity and then you read it and you don't even recognize the gospel but they got some christian rhetoric thrown in there every now and then here's what adam clark says about philosophy the inspired writer's Accepted. The Jews have ever been the most puerile, absurd, and ridiculous reasoners in the world. Even Maimonides, who of course is the famous medieval Jewish philosopher, he's mentioned in all the history of philosophy textbooks, even Maimonides, the most intelligent of them all, is often in his masterpiece, The Teacher of the Perplexed, Guide to the Perplexed, he is most deplorably empty and vain. So... If I've given you a negative view of philosophy, I don't think I've hurt you too much. But anyway, Paul is talking about the philosophy of these Gnostic teachers he's talking about. He's not talking about philosophy in general. And he does say that you could become captive to it, so you've got to be careful. Now, Paul says this empty deceit philosophy, this based on human tradition philosophy is bad. He's referring to bad human traditions. But we've got to remember that apostolic tradition is not bad. It was meant to be obeyed. If you look at the Greek word parodesis, which is... You can look up any Greek lexicon. There's lots of scriptures where talks, Paul talks about, follow my traditions, because those are apostolic traditions. Those are not 
traditions based upon philosophers, and also not based upon the rabbis either. Of course, Jesus jumped on rabbinical traditions, Mark 7, 8. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. It's the tradition of men, or human tradition is bad, not the tradition of the apostles, because those are special men. Those are men who have had revelation. And this philosophy that's based on the elemental forces of the world, you should also eschew. What does elemental forces of the world mean? Now, this is an interesting word. The Greek word is a form of stoicheion. Unfortunately, I used the wrong Greek word in a previous audio, and I feel bad about it, but it's stoicheion. Other translations of this term, elemental forces, which, what does that mean? I mean, you know, nobody knows what that means in English. The NIV has basic principles. The King James, the Young's Little Translation, and the American Standard Version have the rudiments of this world. The Montgomery New Testament has the crude notions of this world. What does that mean? The, the New American Bible has the elemental powers of this world. The New American Standard Bible has the elementary principles of this world. The Bible in basic English has the theories of this world. The Darby translation has the elements of this world. And the GW translation, what does that stand for? I forgot. God's Word. The God's Word translation has the world's way of doing things. Well, all of that means nothing to me. Well, I'm convinced that here it's talking about the legalism of these Jewish Gnostics because that's what Paul was fighting against at Colossae. Now, let me take you to some other scriptures to show you that the word means legalism, three of which are slam dunks, one of which is debatable. Colossians 2.20, if you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, there's Stoicheion, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Regulations, there's the laws, the regulations, the laws, the elemental forces of this world is in the same verse as regulations. So from context, we see that stoicheion means laws or man-made laws, man-made traditional laws. Galatians 4, 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. And of course, Paul, that whole the whole book of Galatians is fighting against legalism. So that's obviously legalism. Galatians 4, 9. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Again, that's in Galatians. He's talking about going back to the law. Weak and bankrupt elemental forces. Stoicheion. Now, here's the one that's controversial. 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. Elements is Stoicheion the elemental forces of this world, elements, will burn and be dissolved in the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Now, most futurists say that elements there is talking about natural elements like silicon and carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be burned up and dissolved, so the earth is going to be physically dissolved. Some preterists also even say that. But now John Owen, who was a famous Puritan theologian at Cambridge in the 16th century, very well-known Cambridge Don and Puritan theologian, he said that this is talking about the legal system of the Jews that will be burned up and dissolved in 87. And I don't know whether Owen was a preterist or not, but that's what he said about this verse. And it makes a lot of sense because if you look at all nine instances in the New Testament where the word is used, it's always talking about the law somewhere. And that to me is conclusive. It's Well, it's 90% conclusive. You, you know, nine times it's talking about the law. We could go to... 
Strong's Concordance and see what Strong's Concordance says about that word stoicheion. First definition, any first thing from which the others belonging to, to some series of composite whole take their rise, an element, a first principle. Second definition, the letters of the alphabet is the elements of speech, not, however, the written characters, but the spoken sound. So you see it's the fundamental component by which a complex thing, a simple component by which a complex thing can be broken down into its simplest parts. That's kind of what it's getting at. Third definition, the elements from which all things have come, the material causes of the universe, the heavenly bodies, either as parts of the heavens or as others think, because in them the elements of man, life, and destiny were supposed to reside. So the fundamental elements of the world, and that's where people get the idea the world's going to get burnt up when they read Second Peter 3. Ten. Fourth definition of Strong's, the elements, rudiments, primary and fundamental principles of any art, science, or discipline, i.e. of mathematics or Euclid's geometry. Well, what's the fundamental principle of the natural order? It's the laws of nature. That's the way things operate by. What's the fundamental principle, the elemental principle of a society, of a government? The laws. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that the word stoicheion refers to the elementary lessons of the outward world, such as legal ordinances. John Gill says that it, the word stoicheion refers to the ceremonial laws of the Jews because they were fundamental to the Jewish nation. They're fundamental to the Jewish nation and they're fundamental or rudimentary compared to the advanced principles of the gospel. Adam Clark says that Stoicheion, quote, is, quote, frequently used to express the Jewish system of rites, ceremonies, and institutions in general. And so Adam Clark's definition fits well with Second Peter 3.10. These Jewish elements will burn up and be dissolved. And instead of translating earth as earth, translated as land, which is perfectly legitimate, gay, and the land and the works on it will be disclosed. In other words, the Jewish land and all the evil works on it will be disclosed as they are burnt to the ground. We go to Colossians 2.9. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. All right, we've already mentioned in the last chapter about all that Christology, where Jesus is the head of the whole physical universe. He's head of all the redeemed mankind. He was also the head of all created mankind because he created all human beings. So he's the head of everything. He has preeminence in everything. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of resurrection from the dead. All of that. So Jesus is full, and it also says the fullness of God's nature was in Christ. That was in Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So everything that God has as far as his divinity is concerned is in Christ. And Paul repeats that in Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So Paul's getting ready to say now that he's established that everything's in Christ, then he's going to say that Christ is in you, Colossians. So that means that everything of God that's divine that you need is in you via Christ. But before he gets there, in verse 9 he says, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Why did he mention bodily? The use of that word, as the NIV study Bible points out, directly refutes the Colossian Gnostics, because the Gnostics taught that the body and all physical things were evil. That's a typical teaching of Gnosticism. The body is evil, therefore we can do what well, you could go two ways with that. You can say it's evil, so therefore we need to be ascetic and not give it any satisfaction. Or we can say it's evil and we can do whatever we want to with it and be libertines. It doesn't matter because it's evil. But 
But Paul says, no, we're not going to go with that. We're going to say the entire fullness of God, God's nature dwells in Jesus' body. His body was a good thing. So here we have the divinity of Christ, the fullness of God's nature is in Christ, and we have that nature in Christ's body. So Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. Here's what John Gill says about that. All the perfections of deity, such as eternity, immensity, omnipresence, om omnipotence, omniscience, immut immutability, necessary and self-existence, all of that's in Christ. Jameson Fawcett Brown says the Greek, which is theotes, means the essence and nature of the Godhead, not merely the divine perfections and attributes of divinity, which is the Greek word theotes. He, as man, was not merely God-like, but in the fullest sense, God. No, that's kind of like homoousios and homoousios. He is the he is has the substance of man. He is not like the substance of man of man. Likewise. He is not like the substance of God. He is He has. He is the substance of God. That's what you need philosophy for, is to distinguish this stuff about Christianity and, and, and Christology and anthropology and all that stuff, all that church history theology stuff, which I think is very important. It's very important for the church. And, some, and they use philosophical terms to describe it, and I think they did a darn good job of it, in my humble opinion. So I, when I said philosophy was bad back then, I need to be careful. Not all of it's bad. Now, I've said that Jesus is, has the entire fullness of God's nature within him bodily. Well, so do Christians. We have also received the fullness of the divine nature. Now, it doesn't mean that we're God now, okay? Let's, I'll say that right up front. We've got to be careful about that. But look, let's see what we see in the scriptures. John 1.16, Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. 2 Peter 1.4, By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature. And it doesn't mean that you are divine. It means you share in that nature. You have some of the characteristics of Jesus' divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Not bad. How many times do you see that verse quoted? Unfortunately, not enough. We're too busy telling people they're sinners all the time. I'm telling you, if you realize that you are sharers of the divine nature, you're not going to want to sin. Sin is going to be loathsome to you because you share the very nature of Christ, and Jesus hates sin. And if you have, if you share Jesus' nature, then you're going to share Jesus' hatred for sin. Ephesians 3.19, And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, do we, are we heretics? Are we like Kenneth Copeland saying, you're little gods? No. But everything that God has for your spiritual sanctification, maturity, transformation, godliness, being controlled by the Holy Spirit, everything that you need, the fullness of God is in you because you're filled with all the fullness of God. That's some strong language, folks. We might ought to emphasize that a little bit more. We go now to verse 10, Colossians 2. Paul says this, And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Filled by him, filled by Jesus. So Jesus is filled up with all the fullness of God, and then we're filled up by Jesus. God fills Jesus with this divinity, and then Jesus fills us. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that we are God. Like Kenneth Copeland said, we are gods. No, that's nonsense. But we do share in the divine nature. Even as a human son shares in the nature of his father, I just read that verse to you from Second Peter. Let me go back and read that again to show you that we share in his divine nature. Second Peter 1, 4. So that through them, these great and precious promises, you may share in the divine nature. And so now you're filled up with him. 
even as a human son shares in the nature of his father. He's not his father, but he shares a lot of his father's characteristics. Now, Paul is pushing back against the Colossian heretics here, as the NIV Study Bible says. They're saying that the Colossians were deficient in purity because they weren't ascetic enough, possibly. Or they were deficient in gnosis. They didn't have enough knowledge to get to God. And Paul's saying, no, you got everything you need. You're filled up by Jesus, and Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Now, Paul says this even though he obviously knows that Colossians had committed sins or were going to commit sins in the future, but he didn't worry about them thinking, well, I'm, I'm a god. I can go out, and I'm never going to sin. He didn't worry about that. He just said, hey, you are filled up with Christ. Now, how many times you heard that, or how many times have you heard, you're a sinner saved by grace? You're just a worm. I grew up as a Presbyterian. I know how many times I was told I was a worm. Ain't no wonder I got a bad self-image even to this day. Nobody, no, None of my Presbyterian mentors ever told me that I'd been filled by Christ, that I'd been partakers of the divine nature. I had to run into the Christ in you movement or the exchange life movement or the Keswick movement or some form of it somewhere in my spiritual peregrinations to before I realized exactly who I was in Christ. That's a good Bible study for anybody to do. Who are you in Christ? What is your identity? Are you an old man or a new man? Are you a sinner or you're a saint? Are you filled with the knowledge of Christ or filled by Christ? Or are you not filled by Christ? Do you share in his divine nature or do you not share in his divine nature? Now, Colossians 2.10 says, And you've been filled by him. I would submit to you that is not a good translation. That's the Holman Christian Study Bible. It should be filled in him. That's the way Jameson Fawcett Brown chooses to translate it. He says that you are filled by virtue of being in union with him. Union with him, a union in him. The NIV says you have been given fullness in Christ. Now here's a list of translations which translate it as in him. You have been filled in him. KJV, Montgomery New Testament, New American Bible, New American Standard Bible, the Weymouth Translation, Young's Literal Translation, Revised Standard Version, and the English Standard Version. The Greek is en, auto, en, which basically means in, en, auto, in him. So we are filled in union with Christ. So that's how we end up with all the knowledge and all the personal holiness that we need to beat what the Gnostics can offer is we are in Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Ruler and authority, of course, is an ambiguous expression. It can mean demons. It can mean angels. It can mean human magistrates. I believe it here it means angels because the Gnostics were constantly talking about how they worshipped angels. Got to give them the password to get to the next level. Jesus is head over all those stupid angels, those angels of light, actually. Phrygia, actually, where Colossae was, was famous for the worship of angels, as BibleAtlas.org says. Now, it could be Jesus could be head over demons. He could be head over kings of the world, obviously. You know, I'm not denying that, but I don't think that's what Paul meant here. Another verse where he says he's head over all rulers or authorities is in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, the previous chapter. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, as that phrase again, rulers or authorities. Same thing. Jesus created these rulers and authorities. He created those demons. They rebelled against him. He created them good, and they rebelled and became bad, if if that's demons he, that he's talking about. Or he's talking about angels. He, he created those angels of light. The good angels or the bad angels, he created them both. Colossians 2.11. Paul continues, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Of course, circumcision was the sign that one stood in a covenant relationship with the God of Israel. This is in the Old Testament, of course. That was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. 
Now, this was likely to be a point of attack by the Colossian Judaizers because the Gentiles were not circumcised. And Paul is saying, look, even though you Colossian Christians and Laodicean Christians are not physically, physically circumcised, don't let those Jewish heretics, Judaizing legalists get you down because you're not physically circumcised, because you are spiritually circumcised, and that's enough. You've got all the fullness of Christ in you. And notice how Paul is going from how you're full in Christ and you don't need what these Gnostics have to give you. you don't, for example, circumcision, you don't need that. It's made without hands because it's spiritual. Removal of the body of the flesh, Paul is making an analogy between when you cir circumcise a baby physically, you remove the flesh of his foreskin, and when you circumcise a Christian spiritually, you remove the what he calls the flesh, which is the sin principle in you that pulls you and entices you to sin, as described in Romans 7, and that is removed. Now, it doesn't mean that it's, it's perfectly gone. It means that you have the power to conquer it. It doesn't mean that it's gone yet. You're not sinless and perfect. That gets into all the sanctification controversies. Now, notice that sometimes flesh refers to Christians, excuse me, non-Christians who are not even saved yet. They're operating in their flesh, and we sometimes use it to refer to Christians who are operating in their flesh, and so it's not exactly clear what Paul means here. Sounds to me like actually he's talking about the removal of the body of the flesh at the time of justification, not at the time of a Christian's sanctification. By Christ's circumcision, he circumcises our heart in the spirit. Now, if that's true that Jesus removed our the body of our flesh, removes our flesh at our justification, that's basically the same thing as saying he removes the old man. In which case, if he removed it, then where's the? How do you say he's still alive? If you hold that old man, new man theory, the dual nature theory of the Christian. However, if it's talking about removal of the body of flesh from a Christian after he's already been saved, and it's talking about sanctification and not justification, well, then you got a problem there too. Because if you say, well, if God removes all of your fleshly tendencies, if he removes the body of the flesh, if that refers to removing the flesh out of your life, well, then where does sin come from? Well, I think the easiest way to say this is the removal of the body of the flesh is a potential removing of the flesh that we can overcome sin. It doesn't mean that we actually do all the time. We go down to Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Buried. Now, that's What's the best mode of baptism to illustrate this truth that we are buried with him in baptism? We have been buried with him by being sprinkled. Does that make sense? Or we have been buried with Christ by being poured on? No. We've been buried because you went down in the water, buried, and you came back up again, resurrection. Immersion is the perfect symbol of that. I do not know where Christians get the idea of sprinkling and pouring as being the best mode of baptism, of course, that's not the important issue of baptism, but still, it is important if you like symbolism, and I do. Buried is a perfect, baptism, uh, immersion is a perfect symbol of being buried. You are also raised with him through faith. There's resurrection connected with crucifixion. And by the way, if you're buried, you ever seen a live person buried, buried alive? No, but you bury dead people. That means the old man is dead. He's not alive anymore. If you're buried, it's over with. He's kaputski. Buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. Faith that God has worked in raising Jesus from the dead. That could be our subjective faith or through the faith that is produced in us by God's working in us. He, he produces some kind of faith. It depends on whether you want to look at faith subjectively, objectively there. I think that 
subjective, the subjective sense works fine. You will also raise with him because you have faith in the working of God. You have faith in what working of God? That God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is a famous verse for reformers because they say, see here, we have baptism in this verse, and we have circumcision in the previous verse. You were circum spiritually circumcised in verse 11, and then you were buried within baptism. There's the connection. Well, I, the connection to me is not so obvious. It's the only place in Scripture where baptism is connected with circumcision. Here's what the Reformed people say. They say that this shows that water baptism is the sign that we have entered the New Covenant, even as the circumcision of the flesh was the sign that you'd entered into the old Abrahamic covenant. Now notice here that God is said to have raised him, Jesus, from the dead. God did it. That does not mean that Jesus himself did not participate in that resurrection. He did so. I don't have the verse in front of me, but it's there. And also we can assume the Holy Spirit worked in Jesus' resurrection. I haven't done an actual study on that yet. I just ran across it one time about Jesus raising himself from the dead. And God the Father raised himself from the dead too. Now, why did Paul mention this? He's trying to show that, hey, if God has the power, the awesome power that's necessary to raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise us from our dead works, from our old, we can, he can raise the old man in us. He can save us from our sins, in other words. He can raise us up so we can be buried with him in baptism and raised again to a new life. Romans 8:11 says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, well, there's the Holy Spirit. I would just ask, I, I didn't know the verse. There's a verse right there, Romans 8:11. If the Holy Spirit, if the spirit of him, the spirit of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Excuse me, he, meaning God, who raised Christ from the dead, will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So, we got... The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 8, 11. We got God the Father raised Jesus from the dead in Romans 11. And the Holy Spirit, who did, who participated in that resurrection of Jesus, he lives in you. So guess what that's going to do for you? He's going to let you live a resurrection life. If God can raise our dead bodies, he can raise us spiritually as a new man in Christ. We go to Galatians 2, 13. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. This is somewhat of a repetition of the previous verse. When we were dead in your trespasses, that means you were morally dead, not physically dead. Although physical death does follow moral death, but you were still living physically while you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were just living your life as a dress rehearsal for the grave. Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And folks, what part of dead do we not understand? If you were dead in trespasses, that means your old man was not participating in life, so the old man was dead. This death is contrasted in this verse with he made you alive. You're either dead or you're alive. You're not both at the same time. The old man was dead in trespasses and sins, but you are alive with Christ, living a resurrected life with the Jesus who has all the fullness of the Godhead, living in you through his Spirit and the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and lives in you and forgave you all your trespasses here. Verse 13, Colossians 2, He, Jesus, made you alive with Him, made you alive with Jesus. Excuse me, He, Jesus, made you alive with Him, with Himself, with Jesus, and forgave us all our trespasses. So that's what it means to be alive, to have all your trespasses forgiven. That's when the new man comes into existence. That's the point when, all is, when He lives is when all your sins are forgiven. 
Verse 14, he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the out of the way by nailing it to the cross. The he there is referring to God. God erased the certificate of debt. What's the common certificate of debt? Today in modern society, we use notes. I, the borrower, will pay the lender $100 plus interest, and I sign it. In the case of us as sinners, it's I, Dan Trotter, owe God my life because of my sins, and I sign it. I admit it. There are certain obligations there. I got to pay. I got to pay with my life. Now, this certificate of debt, this note, I'll call it, was against us. Just like a note, when if I borrow a thousand, a hundred dollars from somebody, that hundred dollars is against me. It's against my pocketbook because I got to pay it. It's opposed to me because I got to, because I got to pay it. Well, God took that note that we owed him, that certificate of debt. And he nailed it to the cross. And then some people speculate that's some way they used to show that ancient security interests or notes were canceled. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if anybody knows that. But this is what Jesus means is nail it to the cross as in it's not effective anymore. Now, and I used to practice law. We, I would always mark notes paid in full. Well, likewise, you got a certificate of debt nailed on the cross. It might as well have a in red ink, paid in full or satisfied, sometimes we'd say, or satisfied in full. Different lawyers use different terms, but you use some kind of term which shows that the, net, the piece of paper is not valid anymore. Otherwise, my creditor could take the note I gave him for $100, and I could pay him $100, and then if he doesn't mark paid in full and give it back to me, that creditor could hand it to me next year and say, here, pay me another $100. I say, I've already paid you. He says, it doesn't say so on this piece of paper. Well, there's no doubt that we don't have to pay our debt to Jesus anymore because he nailed it to the cross. It's marked paid in full, satisfied. It's over with. Now, that term certificate of debt actually is a fuzzy enough to have a lot of for people to have a lot of different opinions on it. Then I've study Bible says it's a business term, meaning a certificate of indebtedness in the debtor's handwriting. And that's the way I take it. Like kind of like a lien, like a mortgage, or like a note, something like that. Some people say the certificate of debt is the covenant God made with Adam. I don't know where Gil gets that. Some people say it's the agreement the Israelites made with God at Mount Sinai. God canceled that. Well, he did cancel it, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. John Gill says it's God's book of remembrance of the sins of men, out of which their names are blotted when they are forgiven. In other words, you're taken out of the book of death. That's nailed to the cross, and your name is gone. I don't think so. John Gill suggests the book of conscience. That's the certificate of debt, a book of conscience that you owe God something. That some John Gill and Adam Clark say the ceremonial law. Well, why not all the law? Certificate of debt. Jameson Fawcett Brown picks out the Ten Commandments. I don't believe all that. It's just referring to a, a note. And the analogy is, even as a note, as someone who writes a note owes money, Likewise, a sinner owes God something, his life. And God cancels the note, says paid in full, satisfied, you don't have to pay it anymore. So now we go to Colossians 2, verse 15, and we'll finish up this extra long audio. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them by him. So that he is, that's God. God disarmed the rulers and authorities. We're going to assume those are demons there. He disgraced them publicly. The disgrace is referring to, is probably referring to when conquered soldiers were disarmed and disgraced at the same time. 
by being stripped of their clothes, their armor, and their weapons. And the NIV Study Bible, Gill and Clark all refer to that as the point of Paul's metaphor. This stripping of their clothes and armor and weapons symbolizes their total defeat. So they're disarmed and disgraced at the same time as they lay down their weapons. They have no more authority anymore, either moral authority or authority with their weapons. God disarmed these demons, disgraced them publicly. As John Gill says, Jesus ascended openly in the air, which is the territory of the prince of the power of the air, in the sight of God and all the holy angels. The demons were disarmed. He triumphed over them by him. The triumph is another military metaphor. The ancient world would bring, would take captives in their train when they won, and the military general would have a, tri- they called it a triumph. He would march into the capital city or into into a major city, and he would have all his captives in his train, and people would throw gifts at him and throw flowers at him and that kind of stuff. And the bad guys, their generals would be put in cages and, and mocked and spit on and that kind of stuff. And so Jesus did that to the demons. He says, hey, you're in my triumphal parade. I'm the conqueror. I'm the winner. You lose. <laughs> and again, what kind of an attitude? This is this shows the power we have in Christ. We don't need to be cowered down. And, oh, the devil's going to get me. The devil's going to make me do that. The devil's going to make me sin. We never should have that attitude. We should always have a conquering attitude over sin and also over the demons who would love to destroy us if they had the power to do that. And I'm going to give you an interesting theological quote here about this disarming and disgracing of the demons. This is from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. He says this, quote, Demons, like other angels, were in heaven up to Christ's ascension and influenced earth from their heavenly abodes. As heaven was not yet open to man before Christ, so it was not yet shut against demons. But at the ascension, Satan and his demons were judged and cast out by Christ's obedience unto death. In other words, Jameson Fawcett and Brown are saying demons lived in heaven, no problem until the crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross forced them to be kicked out of heaven. And that's what it meant to be disgraced and disarmed publicly. I don't know about that. That's very speculative. It's interesting, but I don't know whether I believe it or not. But I do believe that Jesus triumphed over those demons. And because Jesus, who has all the fullness of the Godhead in him, and Jesus, who lives in us by virtue of his Holy Spirit, that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who took a dead man and made him alive again, that same Jesus lives in us, and we need to be worried about demons? That same Jesus who disarmed and disgraced all those demons when he triumphed over them by resurrection from the dead, and we need to be worried about demons? I don't think so. Let me give you some. There's a Greg Bonson, the theonomist, and I do not endorse theonomy. I just, you know, caveat there. But he has a great article on what, on what happens to demons about their defeat. I'm going, he has a lot of scripture. I'm going to give you just a few scriptures that show the defeat of demons in this age. Matthew 12:29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possession unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Jesus is talking about demons. You bind the demon, then you rob him of all of his of his possessions. His possessions being people. Luke 10, 18, he, Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. This is when the disciples came back and said, hey, man, we were casting out demons. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. That soon is probably referring, I think, to the resurrection of Jesus. Satan was disarmed and 
humiliated publicly and crushed under Jesus' feet. How about the demons in, in Gadara or the Gerasene demoniacs? Were they scared to death? Who are you? We know who you are, the Son of God. Please don't cast us into the abyss. They were scared to death of Jesus. So we don't need to be worried about demons. Now, I've said that phrase, rules and authorities, can be ambiguous. It is, but here it's obviously demons. It is in a lot of places, but not here. He disarmed the rules and authorities. He's not going to be disarming his own angels, of course. So that's demons. These same rules and authorities, these same demons who entice people to follow asceticism and other false teachings about Jesus, these same demons who were ruling over the hierarchical levels that the Gnostics dreamed up in their fervid imaginations. No, Jesus triumphed over those demons. This refers back to the idea that Paul expressed in verse 10 of Colossians 2. You've been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority over every demon. One last comment here, the him there. It says he disarmed the demons. He triumphed over the demons by him. That's by Jesus. So that he is God disarmed the authorities and he triumphed over them by Jesus through the agency of Jesus. Now, some people translate him as cross because of textual variance. We want to assume it's him. Sounds better. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a long video. I'm going to have to sign off. I hope you enjoyed it. hope you stay tuned for the next one. In our next audio, we will look at greater in greater detail at these this Jewish Gnostic heresy and see exactly what was involved. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.